You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 84, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum, 11 Lectures, his last 11 public lectures, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 4, entitled Experience and Perception of the Activities of Thinking and Speech, given in Dornach on the 20th of April, 1923. In my last few lectures, I have described human nature in a way which it seems to me may also be comprehensible to the visitors who have kindly come to join us for the teacher's course and whom we are pleased to see here. At the outset, I remarked that much of what I had to say would be a kind of repetition for those already well-versed in anthroposophy. Today I will continue these reflections, firstly with a brief recap of salient points, and we'll then move on to matters that take yesterday's lecture further. When engaging in outward vision, as I remarked, in everything we understand as sense perception, which our reason can then combine and interrelate, perhaps also with the aid of experiments and empirical research, only the human being's physical body is initially involved. But underlying this physical body is what we can call the etheric body or body of formative forces, a subtler entity within the human being, if you like, a second human being within the first. How do we develop real perception of this second human being? I have to keep emphasizing that it really is not all that difficult to develop true perception of this second person in us, who stands before us with as much validity as what the senses perceive and the faculty of reason combines and connects. In modern times, people do not live as strongly as they once did in earlier phases of our evolution in the thought element itself. Within this thought element, they tend rather to surrender themselves passively, awaiting sensory impressions from the sense world. And for this reason, we have to first strengthen this thought element by practicing particular exercises. Of course, people still have thoughts, but they can scarcely come to any real insight into the actual nature of thinking, the activity of thinking, since they are now entirely accustomed on awakening each morning to allow an influx of external sensory perceptions to enter their thoughts and really only accord these external sense impressions any value or worth. While this means that their thoughts have a content, that of external sense perception, they do not manage to feel their own thinking activity as such. This can be achieved, though, through the exercises I have discussed, for instance, in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. Such exercises require us to transpose, if you like, our whole being into thinking activity, giving ourselves up 
with the utmost inner impetus to thinking. In this thinking, what the senses tell us must become a matter of indifference, so that we then live in full consciousness only in this thinking activity. If we have studied mathematics and especially geometry, this can help us a great deal with this inner thinking practice. This thinking activity which we need to practice in geometry is something I would say it jolts us strongly into our own being that we need only experience in its autonomy, its vivid pictorial quality, its inner life and activity. And then, already when we draw a triangle, we will experience the activity of thinking. Look, you can draw a triangle on the board. He draws one. But is this a triangle? What you see on the board here is not a triangle, in fact, but a large number of chalk flakes sticking to the board. If you had a strong enough microscope, you could even count them. It is nonsense to think that what you see on the board is a triangle. A triangle is something you can only have within you, in the thought invoked in you by these flakes of chalk sticking to the board. And if you ignore the chalk flakes on the board, you can still have a mental picture of the triangle within you in thought, without any board or chalk, simply sitting there or standing, not even moving a finger at all. And then you can trace in thought how you start drawing a line, but only inwardly, in thought, then add a second and a third to it. You can live in this inner activity without doing anything outwardly. You can go on to do more and more of these exercises, in particular more complex ones. For instance, you can draw this form in red chalk, and then this one in green chalk, and then you will have a tangible picture of what you can now do inwardly. And there's a picture. Just as you drew the triangle in thoughts before, so now you can do this. The red grows out here into the green, stops here, and the green pushes itself through and under the red so that this figure arises from that one, but all inwardly pictured only. So now you have the red in the middle and the green all round it, and then picture how the red in the middle grows and the green contracts, so that you get the smaller green circle and the red all around it, the red wheel surrounding it. And then you can reverse it again. The red pushes inward, the green expands. You can alternate between these two forms in rhythmic sequence, inside a sphere, outside a wheel, changing from red to green, from green to red, from red to green, from green to red. You can picture all this without needing to do anything outwardly at all. And then it will gradually become apparent to you that thinking means doing something inwardly in the same way as doing something outwardly means using your hands or arms. When you use your arm, you feel this. Now you must learn to feel what it means to use your thinking powers. When you use your arms and feel them, you experience your physical body. When you begin to use your thoughts in this way, you feel your second human being within, your etheric body, your body of formative forces. 
As soon as you have gone far enough with this so that you need only give yourself a jolt to pass from that sense of moving your arms or legs to feeling the inner forces of thinking, then you will, at that moment, experience the etheric human within you, your being of formative forces, and you will experience it as being woven entirely of thoughts. And simultaneously, your whole life on earth will become present to you, as if in a single panorama. You will be able to look back upon your whole earthly life, right back to earliest infancy. What you experience as the second person in you is not a spatial, but a temporal body. And as I already said in these lectures, when one draws the physical human being, one can then also draw this temporal body into it. But this is only to hold fast to one phase of the lightning, as it were. This body of formative forces does not live in space, or only momentarily in space. The next moment it is altered. It continually fluctuates, continually changes, and this flux is what we experience as the life tableau. But at the same time we also feel ourselves to be a part of the whole universe, no longer thinking we are enclosed in our separate skin. It now seems self-evident that we ourselves fluctuate within the whole universe. We are only a wave in the etheric universe. And we gain other apprehensions of this second being in us too. The perception that it continually endeavors to dissolve physical matter into its nothingness. During these days I said to a number of you in a different context that physical matter, physical substance, exerts pressure, while what lives in the etheric realm sucks up what fills space, sucks it all up. And in our life on earth we live continually in this interplay. We eat, and by doing so introduce physical matter into us. This physical matter streams a little way into our body and there initiates all kinds of processes and occurrences that are oriented to this physical matter. When you eat sauerkraut, as it passes initially a little way into our organism, it behaves, to begin with, as it must according to its chemical and physical properties. When you drink milk, the milk behaves as milk must, according to its nature. But this nature is soon dispelled from both sauerkraut and milk. The etheric body begins its activity on them and seeks to extinguish their milk nature and sauerkraut nature. Thus we have within us a continual battle between the nature of sauerkraut or milk on the one hand and the extinguishing of these properties. This battle exists and unfolds. We can recognize this battle in what we excrete and in what migrates toward the head as formative forces, as our supersensible human organism. Precisely as much as we excrete through the various organs of excretion is transformed in the other direction into negative matter as sucking principle, as negative substance that lives in our nervous system and especially the brain. We cannot understand the human being if we consider only the physical body, since then we only learn, as it were, from the periphery and a little way into the body 
of a small part of the processes that actually work within the human organism. We can learn in this way of the processes that occur along the digestive tract and of the excretions such as sweat and such like. All such processes of excretion, which involve substances lapsing into coarse materiality, are balanced equally by the other pole of what is drawn toward the nervous system as etheric substance. Wherever we excrete external material substance, etheric substance passes into us. This etheric nature spins, spirals, and weaves within our etheric body or body of formative forces, which pervades us in the way that I have described. And, as I have already suggested, we learn to know this second person in us by recognizing how the power and faculty of memory can change. In ordinary life, we perceive external impressions. These pass inward, into us, and are taken up by our thoughts, our mental pictures, and then come to a halt. We can invoke them again, but when we do so, our inner energy reaches only as far as the nerve endings. Thus, if we consider the eye, E-Y-E, in the forming of an outer visual image, we push further through the nerve endings of the optic nerve that spreads out in the eye into the eye's blood circulation. This gives rise to a perception. If we only remember something, we only come to the end of the nerve in the eye, to where it runs out, if you like. We do not push our etheric body or body of formative forces further through the nerve endings into the blood. But when we strengthen and invigorate our power of thinking, it is as if we no longer experience this pushback that we have in ordinary memory in which we have first received a perception and transformed it into thoughts that come to rest and are pushed back again. Instead, as it were, coming from behind, we still apprehend the etheric nature of the world. Then we push this etheric content of the world in our organism as far as the point to which we otherwise reach with memories which are, however, only reminiscences of life. And then we acquire consciousness of the etheric workings of the world and live within the world's etheric activity. Those who experience themselves within the world's etheric activity have an experience of themselves that I will sketch roughly as follows. Here is the world's multitudinous etheric activity, yellow. You must imagine it to be configured and formed. Everything lives and weaves here. And then we can experience ourselves within etheric activity. What I am going to draw now will look curious, but it is how things are. The red I am drawing here must be understood as follows. You hardly notice feet and legs. You experience the etheric activity in such a way that you grow forth from this etheric world at one point. You experience these etheric workings reaching to your nerve endings. This passes through the back and reaches as far as the nerve ends of the front of the body, and in this way you become the last outpost or offshoot of the etheric world. 
This is how you feel in relation to the presence of the etheric world. You perceive the etheric world very much as seeing yourself pushed out into the last outpost of etheric activity. Its last portion still intrudes into you, and then this etheric activity ceases in you. Briefly in this fashion, we can live our way into the world's etheric activity. And it really is true. It would not be all that hard to achieve if people nowadays were only inclined, as I described, to live their way into the activity of thinking. The easiest way of doing so oneself is to really dwell fully upon the content of my book titled The Philosophy of Freedom. There, for example, I point to this thinking experience in relation to the ethical and the moral world. If you study the philosophy of freedom in the right way, you can develop first-hand experience of the etheric world, the world of formative forces. The next experience is one you can have by not only engaging this thinking activity, but also the activity of speech, by raising yourself to an apprehension of speech activity. You can start even with the very ordinary mode of speech we use in daily life. But again, you must get as far with this as you did with thinking activity. In the latter case, you have to bring the senses to silence, preventing their impressions on you, so that you live only in active thinking. In the case of speech activity, we must come to the point of having a great deal to express, so that we are not poor in words, but rich in words, so that we actually have a great deal to say, but can also intentionally not utter it all for a certain period while practicing this. I know that some people will find this an extremely arduous exercise, and yet it is essential if we are to become acquainted with the third human being within us. This involves understanding what it means to make all inner preparations to utter a phrase, but to learn to be silent nevertheless, to be actively silent, if you like. To learn to be passively silent when one is in an empty room and no one else is there will not help at all. No, we have to learn to fall actively silent. You might say this will make you a very boring person if you walk around amongst others saying nothing instead of speaking with them. I won't deny that this might well be rather uncomfortable in a social respect, and yet it could be highly beneficial for your spiritual progress. It could produce very positive results for someone who is not ordinarily silent, who would usually speak to refrain from speaking in company. We may know a great deal, and what we know may have led us in the past to talk a great deal, to chatter away, but now we do not speak. As I say, we might do this. But actually, we do not have to do it outwardly. And though it might be beneficial, it would not get us all that much further in respect of higher intentions. It is much more a question of practicing this inwardly, of making all preparations for speaking, but then holding back from speech. You will better understand what I mean if I say to you, for instance, that we do not truly think in ordinary life. We do think in mathematics, if we picture a triangle in the way I described before, and especially if we undertake curious exercises that words cannot convey. 
But if we only think in terms of things that surround us in ordinary life, we are not truly thinking. For in this, in quotes, thinking, the speech organs are continually resonating, albeit so quietly that we do not hear it. Human thinking nowadays, when people have such little inclination to engage in thinking without any outward sensory correlate, is not real thinking at all. It is only an inner weaving of word shadows. Just study yourself and you will find this inner weaving in word shadows at work in you. Now, if we are, on the other hand, able to bring our larynx to full peace and tranquility within us, and yet still to exercise our inner activity of soul, which otherwise underlies the movements of our larynx, and thus, if this exercise of leaving words behind remains a completely inward practice, so that we do the same with speech as we previously did with thinking activity, which is a transformation of our capacity of memory, in which we only pushed forward as far as the nerve endings, then we now carry the speech activity only as far as the larynx, specifically to the point where it would seek to speak. If we do this, then, slowly, what I recently described in a public lecture as, quote, the deep silence of the human soul, close quote, develops. To hold back even from inner speech enables the soul to fall into a deep silence. This is how you should imagine the soul's deep silence. Imagine you're in a city, maybe not Basel, but London, say, or a still noisier city. You are right in the middle of the hubbub and uproar. But now you leave the city and the noise grows less and less as you leave it further behind you. At last, let us say, you enter the lonely quiet of a wood. You find inner tranquility there, and you may say that everything is quiet both in you and outside you. There is a point, if you like, where the noise has reached zero and there is quiet. Let us call it the zero point of quiet. But now you can go further. By refraining from speech, despite exerting all the inner activity that can give rise to words, by not involving the physical body, we can come to a deeper silence beyond the zero point occurring when the outer world falls silent in the soul. I described specific exercises for this in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. By practicing them, we find that we can go beyond the zero point of quiet. In my public lectures, I used a trivial example of what I meant. Imagine that you have a certain amount of capital and spend it so that you have less and less. In the end, you have nothing at all. But you can go on spending by incurring debts then you will have less than nothing. Mathematicians have introduced what are called negative numbers, negative 6, negative 4, negative 2, 0, 2, 4, 6, 8, etc. Thus you can picture how, from the point of zero quiet, we can go on into negative quiet, into a quiet quieter than quietness. That is something you can produce within your soul. But then, if the outer world not only falls silent in this way, but we go beyond this silence when the response of the soul plunges deeper beyond zero quiet into the negative of outward noise and sound, 
From the soul's deep silence the spirit starts to speak. And then we perceive the third being within us, whom we call the astral human being. The terms themselves are unimportant. It's just a form of terminology, and we might find other words for it. We begin to perceive this third astral human being in us when we arrive at the soul's deep silence. And out of the deep silence of the soul something else resounds, the spiritual element, which is a sounding opposite to that of physical tone. And in all respects this astral body leads us further than the etheric body. In order to clarify this, I would like to cite an example taken from the cosmos. Modern physicists or astronomers or any modern scientist study natural laws. They observe and experiment and by this means deduce laws. These laws form a body of scientific knowledge and tell us what is at work in physical things. Scientists should not really go any further than this, but they are so pleased with these natural laws that they can easily start to get a little above themselves and make an assertion they are not actually in a position to make, that these laws hold true throughout the universe. They say, for instance, that anything they discover in their laboratories could be reproduced on the furthest flung planet in the universe if conditions could be replicated there. On planets or stars from which light takes so and so many light years to arrive here. People believe they can picture and calculate such things, and that the same natural laws would of course hold good there, since they are of absolute validity. But this is not so. If you have a light source here, it initially shines strongly in the immediate environment. Further away, the light will grow weaker in strength and still weaker the further away we are from it. Once we have left it a long way behind us, the light will be very weak. So light strength diminishes according to our distance from it. This is true of light and, curiously, it applies to natural laws as well. The natural laws you can observe and formulate here on earth grow ever less applicable the further away you go from the earth. It sounds like a terrible thing to say, and scientists will look at us as idiots if we do so. It is very easy to understand the scientific response to such a statement. We can easily relate to what scientists would think of it. Unfortunately, the reverse is not true. Scientists cannot relate to what goes on inside a spiritual researcher. The spiritual researcher very well knows how scientists arrive at their findings. But the same cannot be said for scientific understanding of spiritual inquiry. This is why most scientific criticisms of spiritual inquiry seem entirely justified to those who make them. And yet they say nothing more than that the scientist cannot conceive of what the spiritual researcher discovers. Scientists would first have to become spiritual inquirers before any real argument could happen. It is a waste of time to argue with someone who holds fast to their scientific position and is unable to conceive of any meaning in the discoveries of spiritual inquiry. Now, as far as light is concerned, 
scientists will acknowledge what I say since they themselves have discovered it, but they will not admit the truth of what I say about natural laws. But already, as regards light, the spiritual researcher has to offer a caveat. In the view of science, light strength diminishes the further away we are from a light source, and eventually a point will come where we can no longer distinguish the light strength from zero. And yet such an assertion is about as wise as saying this, I have here a plastic ball into which I press a thumb. Now, as you know, as I do so, the surface of the ball will tend to bulge out on the other side. The ball's elasticity enables us to push the surface back and forth. But imagine someone saying this, When I push my thumb into the ball, it has to go on receding infinitely until the point where it is so weak that one can no longer perceive it. But that is not so. The elastic material of the ball will at some point spring back again. The same is true of light. Light does not spread out so that we can say that it travels on, growing ever weaker, until it reaches the point of darkness, yet after that travels even further. That is not true. It only spreads out to a certain point, a certain sphere, and then it springs back. And as it returns, only the spiritual researcher sees it, not the scientist. You see, once the light has exhausted its elasticity and rebounds, it returns as spirit, as a supersensible element. So the scientist no longer perceives it. No light radiates that does not ray back again as spirit. But what I am saying here about light also applies to natural laws themselves. Natural laws diminish in validity the further you would move out into space. But this reaches only to a certain sphere, and then it all returns. The natural laws return as meaningful thoughts, and this is the cosmic ether. The cosmic ether does not have a radially emanating or emitting motion in respect of the earth, but a motion, rather, that streams in from all sides. And what lives upon the earth everywhere in this influx are meaning-creating thoughts. The cosmic ether is at the same time a world of formative thoughts. But there is a further aspect to this. When I form thoughts here on earth in the way that is done to formulate natural laws, these thoughts make nice straight lines, if I can speak metaphorically. You can say there is a certain constancy of matter, a constancy of energy. In light theories you have a refraction, exponent, and so on. In thoughts people formulate what lives in the material world. But when these thoughts rebound, spring back, when we experience how thoughts live in the cosmic ether, they are not logical thoughts in the same way, not thoughts with sharp and defined contours. Instead they are picture thoughts, pictures, imaginations. In these matters we can experience very curious things concerning modern culture. A few days ago I said to some of those now sitting here, 
that over the last forty or fifty years, theory upon hypothetical theory has been formulated about the cosmic ether. The cosmic ether was regarded by some as a rigid entity, by others as a fluid entity, by still others as cosmic gas, as something that lives in some kind of spiraling motion, and so on. But what actually happens when people formulate such hypotheses? In creating these hypotheses, they simply continue using the kind of thinking they are used to applying to visible phenomena, processes and creatures in the natural world. But what streams back to us, as I described, has long ceased to be susceptible to formulation in thoughts such as those used to encompass natural laws. We can only grasp or comprehend what comes back to us in this way by starting to think in pictures, to think imaginatively. So, one way of putting it is to say that the content of formulation of our natural laws diminishes in validity with increasing distance from the earth up to a certain sphere. At that point, natural laws have entirely ceased to exist. There they all merge and flow into one another, returning as pictures. They come back to us in forms and configurations. And now, if we have become capable of the kind of supersensible vision I described before, we can regard the world etherically, that is, in picture form. And then you have to acknowledge that as long as we dwell within the etheric, we see nothing of our physical body. And likewise, the thinking we normally use becomes vaporous, hazy. Now it is as if the universe were streaming back to us everywhere, sending pictures, imaginations. And so we begin to lead logical thinking over into thinking of a sculptural, painterly kind, if we wish to comprehend the ether. And so it becomes quite understandable that the ether cannot be comprehended by all the hypotheses founded on calculation. By the time all calculations and formulations arising in relation to natural physical phenomena reach the sphere from which the ether emanates, they have lost their meaning. No longer does anything radiate outward from there, but there is rather an influx toward us, bringing not the thinking that we use here in the ordinary mind, but one that basically lives only in art, but in art too, only in an earthly manner. As paradoxical as this seems, it is simply truth for those who comprehend the world. Imagine that I make a wooden sculpture and create the form of a human being in wood. I make the form and shape of this sculpture so that it closely resembles the human being. Let us say that I do actually succeed in making the sculpture's outward form correspond to the outward human form. But as sculptor, there is one thing I cannot do. I cannot suck out space. As sculptor, all I can do is to master physical matter. But if at the place where I am making the sculpture, I could also activate the etheric laws of the cosmos, and in other words, if this deep silence I spoke of could arise outwardly, then negative quiet, not just zero quiet, would be there. There would not only be mere space, 
but also something from which space itself emerges. And then my wooden sculpture would not produce a human being, but something resembling a plant. The wooden sculpture remains a sculpture because we only reckon with the physical element, thus only make an imprint of form. Because we do not also make what the form would actually and intrinsically be, the sucking out of space. That cannot happen, for otherwise my wooden sculpture would be a growing form. And so you have to recognize that ordinary artistic thinking and feeling cannot in fact approach the etheric world, since this is something where one would not only project something into space, but also encompass space, take hold of it, such that the ether would render this space empty, a vacuum. And then we experience the living element in this emptying, sucking out of space. You see, a quite different kind of thinking is needed if we are to raise ourselves into higher worlds. And then if one has experienced the other thing I spoke of, the soul falling deeply silent, something else happens too you will find that etheric configurations approach you from the cosmos. But at the same time, you also experience sentient spirit beings within these etheric configurations. Not only etheric configuration, but actual spirit beings of the higher hierarchies, as they are called, approach you. Your experience is now that of a spirit among spirits. You experience a real world of spirit that approaches with this influx, this streaming back. And wherever etheric configurations approach us, the world of spirit appears. The physical has gone outward and returns in etheric configurations. But with these etheric configurations, spirit beings can return as well. But if you ask where they have come from, the where actually no longer has any meaning. Their spatial significance is something they have by virtue of coming in from the periphery of the cosmos. They come in from the cosmos from all directions because they are sustained by the cosmic ether. This cosmic ether gives them a spatial location, in quotes, and yet the nature of this spatial quality is their approach to you from without. These two forms of substantiality that I discover in the world in this way, the formative forces approaching me in etheric configurations and flooding over me, and the living spirit beings, are something we appropriate as we descend from our pre-earthly life into earthly life. We fill ourselves with something that we now hold together within us with a part of the infinite world of formative forces, infinite in a relative sense, that is, extending as far as the universe, which is itself filled with the astral body, with what also enters here and only has a spatial dimension by virtue of the ether. We bear the physical body that is composed of the earth's physical constituents, we bear within us the etheric body that actually comes to us from the breaths of the cosmos. And we bear within this etheric body the astral body 
that is spirit from the spirit of the cosmos. Within us we demarcate and confine something that for the universe appears indeterminate and boundless. And if we now go on to undertake higher exercises still, where we not only come to the soul's deep silence, but also penetrate this profound silence and awaken in our own will, as we otherwise only awaken in thinking, then we experience our fourth human entity, our I, capital. Tomorrow I will speak further of this. The end of Lecture 4